Are you interested in attending a Nine Marks event in your area? Visit www.ninemarks.org forward slash events for more information about our upcoming events, including workshops and conferences. Hi, I'm Ryan Townsend, Executive Director of Nine Marks. Our vision is simple, churches that reflect the character of God. In light of that, Nine Marks exists to equip church leaders with a biblical vision and practical resources for displaying God's glory to the nations through healthy churches. To that end, we pray that this Nine Marks audio message will benefit both you and your local church. Listen, learn, and join the conversation. It's July 9th, 2011. This is Mark Dever. I'm here along with Jamie Dunlop. We are both pastors of Capitol Hill Baptist Church here in Washington, D.C., and we are here to interview a good friend of ours who's recently completed some interesting work that we think uh, you might like to hear about, uh, John Harden. John, thank you for being with us today. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. I should say Dr. Harden. Yes. Yes, you should. (laughs) (laughs) No, it still sounds very strange, so it's okay without it. You are a... You are a married 35-year-old think tank employee who is an evangelical Christian and a faithful church member. Is that correct? That is correct. The uh, faithful church member you'd have to ask my pastor, Mark Dever, about. (laughs) Where are you from? Uh, From Rock Hill, South Carolina, originally. So how was growing Uh, up in South Carolina? Growing up in South Carolina was great. I cannot imagine a better state to grow up in. Uh, Enjoyed uh, going to the beach every summer and enjoyed the southern humidity that people think we have here in D.C., but it's nothing compared to South Carolina. (laughs) What were you like in high school? Oh, in high school, I was uh, I was naive, I was arrogant, and probably sarcastic. Those three things. A little nerdy, skinny. very into. I was very skinny. Um, thanks. So that's why you did a PhD? <laughs> yeah, it was. I was. It was predetermined. How could I avoid it? I was nerdy and but, but, uh, couldn't but, get out of school. But between nerdy high school and PhD, you actually went to the Citadel. Yes, a lot of things happened between. Were you planning to have a military career? I was not. I actually had never planned on anything military related and was offered a full academic scholarship at the Citadel. And my mom made me go and look at the Citadel. I didn't really want to. And on a Friday afternoon. You thought the uniforms were cool. I did. They have parades every Friday afternoon where everybody marches out with the uh, bagpipes playing and the cannons firing and rifles and swords and. I thought it was the coolest thing I'd ever seen. And little did I realize that a few months later when I was in one of those parades, it would be the most miserable thing that I had ever been a part of. But that was what brought me, took me to the Citadel. And it was a great experience. I wouldn't trade it for anything. And when did you become a Christian? became a Christian after I went to the Citadel. Uh, the semester after I graduated, all my buddies from high school were pulling a fifth year at Clemson. And so I went up to Clemson, took some classes uh, doing a master's in civil engineering and a master's in business, just testing the waters to see what I wanted to do with graduate school. And while I was there, I got started going to the Fellowship of Christian Athletes meetings every Thursday night with some of my friends. And that was where I, though I had grown up uh, in a church, that was really the first time that uh, my eyes were open um, to, to, to see, my ears were open to hear the gospel. And so repented and believed at that point. So that was October of 1998. Now, we're talking today because of this Ph.D. work you've just completed at the University of Maryland. Right. How did you get from doing that, that master's in business right. 
to then I know you did some theological studies at Southeastern Seminary and also at Duke. How did you get from there to doing a PhD on American business history yeah. at the University of Maryland? Well, while I was in, I moved to South Florida to work in golf course construction and design. Well, of course, that I just mean, fits with all the other sense. things. Makes sense. Yes, that I would do that. Uh, so I went down there, and while I was there, I got involved in a church, and over time, resigned from my position doing golf course work to actually be the college pastor at the church, and then decided I wanted to pursue a theological education. Um, so I uh, did go to Southeastern, then I went to Duke and, and did a master's. And while I was at Duke, I had to take, it was required to take, an American religious history class. Oh, this is with Grant Wacker. With Grant Wacker. Oh, okay. And in that course, I was just fascinated by history. I had hated it in high school, hated it in college, but loved it um, and for whatever reason when I took that class at Duke. And so... Uh, Grant encouraged me and supported me in pursuing a Ph.D., and I didn't really have anything else going on. I thought, why not? Let's just go do a Ph.D. So I applied to a couple different schools uh, in the D.C. area and then moved up here in the summer of 2004 after I'd finished the Master's in Theological Studies at Duke to do the Ph.D. at Maryland. And I got to know you almost immediately. Yes, yes. It was soon after that. I had moved up here, I believe, in June of 2004. I visited a few churches in the area and came here, and then we met uh, one of those first Sundays yeah. that I was here. And, you know, as we talked about the work that you were thinking about doing, I was just fascinated by it. So I've, I, for, for seven years, have been really interested in your work, and uh, now that it's completed and I've actually got to read the dissertation, uh, I'm, I'm uh, interested in seeing what others will make of it, and I hope... Uh, I hope you're getting a lot of good feedback on it as people get to read it. I know it's just in early stages because it's, it's a dissertation alone right now. Yeah, I've been really encouraged by how many people have wanted to look at it and read it and the feedback that I've gotten from it, how helpful they've found it to be. And um, and I'm appreciative to you because you obviously were very involved in the development of the project. Uh, my interest in looking at ecclesiology really derived from the conversations that we were having back in 04 and 05 when this project really began to take shape. Now, just to be clear, because I haven't really said what the topic of your work was, your work right. was on business practices in American Christianity in the 20th century. Right, yeah. It's and I think it's fair to say that you were fair, but because you highlight tensions, mm -hmm. you could say it's an implied criticism. Yes, you could say it's an implied criticism. I... Um, my goal was to write a fair, objective history of church marketing, basically. That was where it started. Uh, it broadened into an entire 20th century history of church promotion. So in terms of big business practices in churches, I was specifically examining promotionalism. And um, in so doing, I think w the grand conclusion, so to speak, that comes out in the dissertation is that the things that like Oz Guinness and David Wells and some others write about church marketing, I think I find are true in the historical development of church marketing. Um, and so you could say that there is sort of an implied criticism there. Okay, so, so then should a pastor care about how the phone is answered when somebody calls the church? <laughs> oh, well, uh, according to... Um, According to all of the sources that I read, yes, uh, so you should be. Um, but I'm not. I'm not sure that I can say in my dissertation. I mean, my dissertation obviously doesn't land there on whether or not on something sort of that kind of a detail. Uh, I think, of course, it does make sense to be kind when you answer the phone.
Okay, I mean, so biz- business is important. There's no doubt about that. Oh, definitely. Yeah, I think the last thing the Lord of the Feudal Castle would have imagined was that the future of society was with the forces that were represented by the humble trader who set up his post beneath the walls of his castle. Right, yes. Very nice quote. Um, Eric Hoffer said that every great cause begins as a movement, becomes a business, and ends up as a racket. That's a little extreme, maybe. Is that what your dissertation really is showing? That American Christian churches have become a racket? Not a racket in the sense that they're not illegal business practices, uh, but I think I am demonstrating maybe the step before that, that the movement does become a business. So Christianity is a business? In many ways, yeah, business practices have so um, influenced Christian practice, particularly in churches. I mean, that's what I'm looking at in this dissertation uh, in terms of church practice, that business principles have become really paramount in the American Christian Church. And so is your thesis basically a, an investigation about Harvard Business Review and Bill Hybels and Barna and purpose-driven philosophy of ministry kind of stuff? It is at, towards the end of it. Um, yes, that's where I land sort of at the end. That's the trajectory is to, to move towards church marketing as we know it today um, insofar as it's sort of disseminated through Bill Hybels and Rick Warren and their associations in the books of George Barna. But... Th- that's only really the last two chapters of the dissertation. The six before it, I'm tracing it back to 1900 and really trying to examine where did this come from? Are okay, these so broader the, trends? Is church marketing something new? It's new and it's old. Uh, it's it's new insofar as the practices of church marketing today since really what developed in the late 1980s and particularly during the 1990s. Uh, those specific practices insofar as there is a consumer orientation driving church marketing or driving marketing. That's new. So was it happening at all after World War II? Well, what was happening is a lot of the same, of the same practices. So, for instance, um, particularly after World War II, and the, the, the period between 1945 and 1965 I think is a really fascinating 20 years because you have this explosion, this boom, in, obviously in the American economy, but also in American religion, and it provided this landscape for sort of church innovation. And churches began to more aggressively court customers um, by providing comfort and convenience and entertainment in a way that they had not before. So those practices are similar in terms of what we see today, multiple services, uh, campus churches where parking is easily available and easily accessible, where there's a wide inventory available of services that are offered, the same that would be available in a shopping mall, something like that. So those practices are developing in the 1950s. Uh, and, and you can trace them even further back. It, it, one of the In the first chapter, we'll look a little bit at these skyscraper churches that were built in the teens and in the 20s. Mm-hmm. And these churches are doing the same kinds of things. They're trying to offer an inventory uh, to, attract a cust- to attract customers. And they're trying to embody really the, the popular forms of the day, whether that be meeting in a skyscraper or in a theater or something like that. But what changes... What I'm arguing changes is a significant transition from a producer orientation to a consumer orientation. So it's looking to the market to determine what do people want. Here's a quotation you gave from a 1944 church management column. Quote, a pastor's laundry is quite as valuable as his library. Right. 1944. Yeah, it's, it's surprising how early some of these things appear. And I think that's one of the things that's surprising in the dissertation and valuable in the dissertation to see that a lot that there really isn't anything 
new in terms of the practices. There's still that emphasis on appearance. Well, let me try to be a little skeptical then. I mean, haven't there always been pastors who would ride a pig if we get 500 in Sunday school next week? <laughs> I mean, you know... People condemned George Whitfield's outdoors preaching as a stunt for publicity. So, I mean, is, right. this, yes. is this really even just 20th century? Isn't this just always kind of standard stuff? No, it's not. Insofar as there is a, a rational methodology that develops, uh, that looks to and analyzes consumers to determine precisely what they want, and then segments the market. So it's not just advertising to everybody, I'm going to ride a pig on Sunday, y'all should all come to church and check it out. It is, okay, who's going to be interested in me riding a pig? Or even more so. Sounds like I probably experienced that at some point, doesn't it? <laughs> That's a little disturbing. Let's did it. Anyway. Now, <laughs> uh, if, if there are people out there that want me to ride the pig, who are they and how do we target them? Um, and so I think all of that is, is new. I've described your thesis to friends as, telling you, as it's sort of telling you something you probably already know but then giving you the fascinating backstory. Right, yeah. So I think the critique that you, you provide of uncritical use of business practices is not surprising. Mm-hmm. But what I'd never seen any place before is, is just the story, sort of the making of the documentary, you know, right. how this all actually came about. I thought it was fascinating, John. Yeah, I think in the, what I'm trying to do really, or what I've done in the dissertation, is provide context for what we see today in church marketing. And even for, I mean, one of the examples that you've used in a lot of your talks is C.S. Lovett's book, Soul Winning Made Easy. And so what I'm trying to do is provide context for that. That was, I think, written in 1954 or something like that. Well, what's going on during that period of time to to make that popular? What are people thinking in terms of... I can remember as a child even, sort of go to church campaigns, go to the church of your choice. Right. You know, I mean, that would be on billboards in Madisonville, and that would be radio announcements. There would be TV little advertisements. Yeah, there's an enormous campaign called the Religion in American Life campaign that was sponsored by the Ad Council that started in 1949. It was really kicked off with Harry Truman making this big radio address, and it went all the way up until 1992. And Mm -hmm. it's where businesses would just pour millions of dollars into this campaign to promote church attendance. And one of the fascinating things that you run into that I, I address one of the themes in the dissertation is what that requires in terms of cooperation. So if a lot of churches are going to get behind that widespread of an advertising campaign, you've really got to sort of dumb it down to the to the universal principles. So there's not a lot you can say doctrinally. It's it's more just, hey, you should go to church. Um, and so this, this cooperation platform that church promotion provides um, does really create this sort of pluralistic environment, um, which I think is really fascinating and how that changes American Christianity in some ways. So, John, for pastors listening in, they're familiar with church marketing. They're not familiar with the backstory that you chronicle in your dissertation. What, what from that backstory would change the way you think they should view church marketing or view where church marketing is headed? Right. What are the insights they should take away from understanding the context, as you put it? Yeah, that's a good question. I think that... One of the things that's, that's important in it is that you see how, wh- what are the influences. So I, I think before I wrote this dissertation, I thought of church marketing as something that sort of stood on its own. And I think what my what this work has provided has been insight into where does church marketing come from? What are the influences? And the influences are the business community. And churches have followed all along, as, as Mark was even noting, George Whitfield, there's a great book on him by Frank Lambert called Peddler of Divinity, which looks at the influence that uh, promotionalism had on George Whitfield. So this has always been there, but I think in the 20th century you can see, okay, exactly how do business practices 
uh, grow inside of American Christian churches. We lay out those three phases of production sales marketing. Right. And then you kind of lay that on top of what Christian churches have done, and it's it's amazingly uh, powerful as an explanatory tool. You want to just... Give a quick summary of that kind of history and background. Yeah, so the if you look at the history of business promotion in the 20th century, advertising really began around 1900. It was the turn of the century. And it developed because in, you've got the industrial movement taking place, the industrial revolution. You have all these products now, and you've got to get people to buy them. And so advertising builds as an industry to get materials, to get people interested in buying things. So promotion begins with advertising, and then in the 1930s and 1940s, it shifts. I mean, advertising still remains, obviously, but the the sort of center of gravity of promotion shifts to public relations. And public relations is different from advertising, where advertising, you are telling people about a product. You're providing information about a product. These new iron hoop skirts are now out, and they will last for a lifetime. Right, or better yet, if you don't have them, everyone on the block will hate you, uh, is the way things were advertised. And still are. Um, public relations, uh, in, in contrast, public relations is trying to engender public support for your institution or your product. And so it uses indirect mechanisms to uh, engender that support. So advertising is very direct. We know when people are advertising to us. Public relations is an article in the newspaper that talks about how such and such company went and worked at the homeless shelter this past weekend. And so it's, it's, it is, in some sense, more manipulative, or can be. It's described as that. Uh, but public relations really became this, this major central promotional tool in the middle of the century. And then we move into marketing, uh, starting in the 1970s, 1980s, where marketing is a much more comprehensive strategy uh, to obviously move goods um, or move services to customers, but it is built on the philosophy of customer sovereignty, ultimately, is determining what does the consumer want and then altering the product. So when I talk about a shift from a product orientation to a consumption orientation, I'm talking about the difference between uh, Henry Ford making Model Ts and saying you can have any color you want as long as it's black. He just makes a product and puts it on the market to General Motors saying a car for every desire, and in every color. It's figuring out what do people want and altering the product to suit them. So as you look at that transition of the 20th century, then you put churches right up beside it, and churches move in lockstep with those transitions. Um, so I think that is one of the helpful things in terms of the context that the dissertation, um, that this work provides. Jamie, any comment on that? You mentioned that they move in lockstep. Right. Um, it's a little bit of an exaggeration. How, yeah, how much Jamie, I've heard you say, because Jamie was a business consultant for 10 years, I heard you say that you think Christian churches are a little slow. On well, that's always been my impression. Now, now you've right. actually studied it. How much of a delay is there between something showing up in a Harvard Business Review and it showing up in a local church? Yeah, there is. I mean, there is a lag. There is a lag time. And how much is actually, I was surprised at how little of a mm. lag time there is. Now, there's not the sophistication of the marketplace, broadly speaking. So marketing, advertising, those are huge industries. Churches aren't nearly as sophisticated in the way that they advertise, that they do public relations. But they're picking up the basic principles very very quickly after they're sort of developed and implemented in the marketplace. And I think that's a product of just these individuals that I trace through the dissertation, these significant figures who are taking that information from the business world, writing a guidebook, and getting it out on the market. 
Uh, and so there is that quick transfer. The only place where there's an exception that I found was in sales. So door-to-door salesmen and saleswomen were really popular in the 19 teens and the 20s and then maybe into the 30s. I didn't see it really popping kind of up like in churches. the music man. Yes, exactly. Yeah, exactly like the music man. I didn't see it popping up in churches until really the 1940s. So I think there was a significant lag there. I'm not sure why, and I could be wrong on that. Uh, but all the evidence I found, that's what it, it suggested. So people like Lovett writing in the 1950s are really on the cutting edge of, of doing sales um, with with religion, so to speak, with Christianity. If we can just explore the history side a little bit for a few minutes, because I was fascinated by that. I was surprised at the central role you gave Robert Schuller. <laughs> I mean, did he really regard himself as the founder of the church growth movement? He did. Well, not the church growth movement so much as as, church, as the church marketing movement. Um, and Schuller did say, I mean, he, he is quoted as saying in a couple different ways, I am the father of what we call church marketing. And I was... I was probably just as surprised as you are that Schuler ended up playing, playing such a central role. I did not approach the, this this project thinking Robert Schuler is going to be my pivot guy, right? That's where this thing, the whole thing turns. That's where the shift occurs from public relations and advertising to church marketing. But as I looked at if you the principal leaders in church marketing today, Bill Hybels, Rick Warren, George Barna. Uh, Barna's influenced, obviously, considerably by Hybels. Hybels and Warren both significantly influenced by Robert Schuller. And what Robert Schuller did was he took all these things that had been happening before and just injected them with steroids. I mean, he was the consummate promoter. It's just really fascinating. I spent about a month just in his documents, in his collection. and just Where, where is his collection? It's at Hope College in uh, Michigan. He went to undergrad at Hope, and then he went to uh, seminary there at Western Theological Seminary, I believe it is. Um, so they have all of his papers in his, his personal collection. And just reading through his letters, his promotional materials, all the church material, it's just astonishing uh, what a promoter he was. That he was just totally driven by what I call sort of a P.T. Barnum uh, spirit. So there are those who've said Robert Schuller is the Henry Ford of American Christianity. I don't think that's true. He's not out there mass-producing Christianity, but he is the P.T. Barnum of American Christianity. It's just amazing what uh, the impact he Was had. he the father of the megachurch as we know it today in America? In some ways, he, he was, and he had one of the first, and he really embodied the principles or p- applied the principles, he, he kind of coalesced the principles, brought them together, wrote them up in a book in 1974 called Your Church Has Real Possibilities. And that's the book that got into the hands of both Rick Warren and Bill Hybels in the, ni- in the mid-1970s when both were thinking through sort of beginning their churches uh, and, and was very uh, had a great influence on them. But he really he had this vision for the shopping mall church that provides everything. And he had these principles that he said, these are the, the paramount principles if you're going to have a successful church. they've got It's got to, number one, be big. That wasn't one of his principles, but he, that's all he talks about. It's got to be a big church because if it's a big church, it po- provides inventory, one of his principles. Uh, it's got to be in, have good inventory. It's got to be accessible. It's got to have possibility thinking, theology, uh, but primarily, he said, the, the, the most important thing a church must have is surplus parking. That was, if you're going to have a church, that's it. Not preaching or anything else that we might think would be important, but it was surplus parking. So Capitol Hill Baptist Church is kind of the he anti really disappointed. Very disappointed. <laughs> what, now, was Donald McGavern's work a significant part in this story? 
Not a significant part. Um, that's one of the sort of regrets I have. I wish I could have included the church growth movement more. Um, but in terms of what I was tracing was specifically the application of marketing principles from sort of the business but world. In, but in and, formulating those principles, I mean, is is he the father of the sort of modern seeker-sensitive movement? Well, I think he is in partnership with Schuler and some others. So the homogeneous unit principle, which yeah. is McGavern's principle that he lays out. And just the, explain what the, that is for people bridges. who may not know. Yeah, McGavern's first book was The Bridges of God, written in 1955. And the homogeneous unit principle that he articulates in that book is to say that the, the people that... It, basically, you have scarce resources, so you have to spend them wisely. And so you should spend them on the people that are most likely to be attracted to what you're offering. And that's going to be the people that are most like you. So if you're planning a church in another country or even in your own country, you need to target those individuals that are like you. And so Bill Heibel says he developed Unchurched Harry and Mary. That was his his, uh, market that he's trying to get at. And he said, when you define those people, you just think about who would you go on vacation with. That's how you determine the people you should approach and that's the homogeneous unit principle. That is that you go after the people that are like you. Birds of a feather flock together. Right, exactly. Uh, and that's segmentation marketing at its finest, which is a key principle in church marketing. So, Can we turn to your critique for a moment? Mm-hmm. So you've described the homo- homogeneous unit principle, and pastors today are often told we need to be a church for Gen Xers or second generationals or cowboy churches, what, what have you. What's wrong with that? Well, and I don't address this in my work because it's more of a historical We're just going after analysis. John Harden the Christian. Yeah, right, yes. Um, what's wrong with that is, is discrimination, that uh, God's people are all people, that we're not divided by race, by ethnicity, by culture, um, and that the one thing that we should all have in common, regardless of those distinctions, is Christ, is the gospel, and that to uh, discriminate in marketing is to say that we're not going to, we're not going to preach the gospel to those people. We're not going to evangelize those people, and which uh, seems to me to be a violation of what God's commanded us to do. So. Won't certain kinds of promotions always be more attracted to certain kinds of people? Oh, yeah, definitely. So, I mean, when you're in New England and you're in the 1700s and you're right. a Puritan or 1600s, you put up a church steeple and use the bells. Right. I mean, that's church promotion, isn't it? It is, actually, yeah, having a steeple and bells. So, I, mean, I think you're right. That is always going to be an element. It's that... But it's that deliberate choice to discriminate in the market, to segment so the market. So to, to use your own three-part history of, of marketing and promotion, you know, from product to sales to marketing. Right. You're saying product and even sales, you know, hey, do is okay, but marketing's not. I mean, I'm saying there's things... Saying well, it's I'm more not, problematic the closer you get to market. Right, I think that's true. See, and production, that's fine. You're letting people know what's there. Right. Sales, eh, there's some potential problem for manipulation, but, you know, you're still letting everybody know. Yeah. And that's good. Right. Marketing. Well, and I'm I'm not necessarily saying that uh, in this work, right? Well, no, I'm with Jamie now. I'm just asking John. Okay, but, well, what what I'm doing is this interesting thing happens. In 1992, prior to 1992, there is really no opposition to church promotion. Now, you see a little bit of it every now and then. Reinhold Niebuhr wrote a little bit about well, it. Carl Henry had 30s. been to church promotion. I mean, yeah, Carl Southern Henry's, Baptists were deep into it. I mean, this is... Right. It was a warp and woof of evangelical Christianity. <laughs> a warp and woof, indeed. So, 
That's right. So there's not much. If there is criticism, it's just saying, well, it's not dignified or it cheapens religion. But there's nothing sophisticated, complex. There's nothing serious, really, in the critiques. 1992, that all changes. Uh, from 1992, particularly to 1997, but also just up until today, you have a number of books published by critics of church marketing. Uh, the, the principal ones being Oz Guinness, David Wells, Douglas Webster, Philip Kinnison. Uh, those are prior to, to 2000. They all write in the 1990s. And then after 2000, you have several more. Um, I think Gary Gilley, this church, went to market, things like that. So what I'm showing in the dissertation, or what I'm arguing is, you that happens, that eruption of opposition happens in 1992 because marketing is significantly different. Because marketing introduces that consumer orientation where a church really defines itself around as its purpose to meet the felt needs of the customer and to segment the market. And I think that that's why you get such an outcry against it is because it's, very, it's really different than what was happening But isn't before. your whole dissertation, kind of, or the work you've done, sort of showing that the seeds for that in the 1990s yes. were way back there in the 1920s right. with stuff that may look Simpler, so Gaines Dobbins you talk about, mm -hmm. professor of church efficiency at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. What, what was his role? Well, Dobbins had a, had a major role. He began uh, teaching at the Southern Seminary in 1927, something like that. It was the late 20s. And he really developed this curriculum for even broader than church promotion, just business principles in churches. And so Dobbins argued that a church is a business, um, that's how a church functions. And so he was saying that for the pastor, administering and managing is just as important as preaching. Right. That's exactly right. Yeah, and he wanted to equip pastors to do it better, to be better administrators, to be better managers, to be better promoters. And so he developed, he started writing books. His first one in, I think, 1930, late 1929, something like that. Uh, he wrote a, just a number of books on how you, uh, as a pastor, how you manage your church like a business. And he taught classes on it at Southern until the 1950s. Um, and so I think he had an incredible influence on all the pastors that were going through Southern. And then he's just one in sort of a cadre of many others at the same time who were promoting these kinds of, of principles and practices. Here's a quote from his 1947 book, Building Better Churches, A Guide to the Pastoral Ministry. Quote, Other institutions may utilize publicity and promotion as adjuncts to their main business. But the business of a church and its minister is that of publicizing and promoting. Right, yeah. Quite properly, we would shrink from the advertising of a church or its minister for the sake of notoriety or special advantage. But the church that goes out of the publicity and promotion business has gone out of business. Yeah, precisely. And that's, that's one of the quotes that I, I use is that is. that last bit. It's the business, the business is that of publicizing and promoting. That's that's the lens through which he sees the whole right. church life. Yeah, and, and in fact, a lot of his work was on uh, Sunday school pedagogy. And it was because, principally, he saw the Sunday school as the entry point into the church. So when we look at the seeker-sensitive churches, they have this worship service, right? That's the, where you get seekers to come to this worship service, and that's how you get them into the church. Gaines Dobbins was arguing Sunday school is the way you get people into the church. So, again, I mean, I think, yeah, his central sort of lens through which he saw the church was as a business. Now, he seems to have captured an insight that I see prevalent in business, which is that there's a very fine line between product and promotion. 
mm-hmm. uh, that when you change promotion, you change product, at least in consumer industries. Right. And yet you talk about the fact that so many proponents of church marketing deny that, mm-hmm. that they suggest that you can uh, change how you promote the product without actually changing the product itself. Yeah, and I think that's, I mean, that gets also back to your previous question about how is going through the whole 20th century helpful, providing this context. And I think it is, it is one way is that point precisely, is that you see throughout the 20th century, there is the assumption or the argument that the message does not change even though you change the method, and that methods can be altered, that methods are neutral, and you see it in the advertising, in the public relations, and in marketing. And so I think, yeah, one of the principal things that we can learn from the work I've done is we've got to be really careful in making that assumption because, in fact, there are all of these values, and this is what Oz Guinness and David Wells, I think, articulate very well, is that these methods introduce, you bring the methods in, you assume they're not changing the message, but they have baggage of modernity. They bring in modern values of rationalism, of individualism, of pluralism. Um, and so I think, yeah, the, the, the major lesson here is, is that pastors need to be really critical of what they're reading in terms of any kind of business practices. Anything that they transfer from the marketplace, be very critical and aware that there are values that stand behind all of those methods. So can you give one example of how the method changes the message? Well, let's see. I'm trying to think of... um, I don't know that... I mean, I have a specific tangible example as much as just the trends that I'm trying to map out in the way that when you... um, when you do change the the method that it does change the way people receive the message, the way they understand it. Particularly, so for instance, uh, Robert Shuler begins holding his church services in a drive-in theater. The assumption would be that's fine, it works well. But people would receive that message differently sitting in a drive-in theater. That's where you go for entertainment and things like that. Now, I, I, unfortunately, in this work, don't explore in great detail how people are consuming religion, how they're receiving and interpreting it. A lot of sociologists have done that. I think they've got some really helpful work. Um, but I am dealing really more specifically from a production side. But I think as you, as you look at Warren, as you look at Hybels, you look at their ministries, you can see how their methodology really does push, in many ways, their theology, the way that they're, what they're communicating. Because, as Wells argues, and as um, others argue, that when you focus on church marketing, you uh, evacuate any of the controversial doctrines of Christianity because that's going to push people away. And that's one of the major problems that any church promoter is up against. The, their, the goal is to sell a message that got the original, quote-unquote, salesman killed. I mean, there are a lot of things about Christianity that are not attractive. That, that I mean, otherwise Jesus wouldn't have been killed for it. And so it's interesting as you look at the history of church promotion that there is, again, getting back to this sort of assumption um, that I want to call naivete in some ways, that you can engender public support by being honest even though your message actually might push people away. One of those has got to give. You've got to be dishonest or you've got to change your message. The way you began the thesis was the best I'd ever seen, I think, in the <laughs> thesis. Am I going to read this first paragraph or shall you? 
Oh, I, <laughs> um, I can read it if you want me to, if you have it there readily available. Okay. In 1925, the Pasadena Community Church in St. Petersburg, Florida, was searching the local community for three more members in order to reach a total of 20, the number required by the Methodist Church to establish a congregation. With winter residents reluctant to transfer their membership, the church's future was in peril. Few would have guessed that the Pasadena Community Church would not only be established, but also become the first church in the United States where a person could enjoy a service in the convenience and comfort of his automobile in the parking lot. These founders could not have guessed that their church would be part of the inspiration for Robert Schuller's 1955 drive-in church, which would grow into the Crystal Cathedral, host of the most popular religious television show in the 1980s. Nor could they have foreseen that through their inspiration, Schuller would be the primary catalyst in launching a church marketing movement that would help breed megachurches across the country. No, in 1925, all they could predict was that they would in fact have a church, because in November, they found their last three members— they were my great-great-grandmother, Mrs. Barna Sims, my great-grandmother, Ethel Sims, and my grandmother's older sister, Sarah. Wow. So a little personal connection. Did, did you already know that before you began doing this work? Well, I knew about the church. I grew up hearing about this church that my great-grandmother had played this enormous role in where you could go and sit in your car and attend the church. But I didn't know that there was a specific connection to Robert Schuller or that there would be to, to my research and my work. And it was actually when I was in Schuller's uh, collection, going through his papers and things, that I came across his references to J. Wallace Hamilton, who was the pastor of this church in Florida, and how when he had seen, that somebody had given him Ride the Wild Horses, which was a Hamilton sermon, and he had investigated Hamilton and found out that Hamilton had this, what they called the Garden Sanctuary, where, church, where cars could pull up. And they had all these speakers around it. And you could just sit in your car and listen to the service. And they had a pastor outside on a platform that was called the Sky Pilot. And so Schuler thought, wow, this is a great idea. This is a, you know, this is a way to, to, to make it more convenient, more comfortable uh, for a church service. And so it blew me away I thought, I, I, when I realized, oh, my goodness, that's the church that my great-grandmother sort of made possible in many ways and gave, devoted so much of her life to so it was pretty pretty wild. Did you ever go there when you were a little boy? No, I never did. Um, I, I don't think. I'm, I, I should ask and see. I'm not sure if I did or not. But and then uh, another personal connection I make is that later, you know, in, in life, earlier in life for me now. But um, after hearing all about this, my great grandmother's church, I ended up as this um, leading, really, a rock band for a church that met in a hotel. And so it's it's similar in the sense that you have. A church meeting in what is more sort of a business secular venue, secular venue yeah. right? And so uh, I thought it was pretty funny that I uh, got my great grandmother and then me sort of participating in this, and then now I'm I'm trying to research it and see how it all developed. Any other uh, particularly interesting tidbits you came up with along the way in all your researches? Well, I think one of the things that was interesting that I didn't expect and I didn't know was there is that marketing scholars actually participated a lot in the development of church marketing. And so in the 19, as early as 1959, professors in marketing at universities started investigating and recommending that churches employ marketing practices. And now, did they do that just because they saw that as another field of business? Yes, I think so. I think they, they saw, hey, my church is struggling. What should we do? 
oh, we should use all these this marketing stuff. This works really well. well or were they sitting in their Madison Avenue office wondering, hey, we want some more revenues. Here's an unexploited market. Let's try the churches. It's small, but it's completely unexploited. Let's get something out of it. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think that's what they were doing. I mean, the, when you look at the, the individuals, like Peter Drucker played a huge so role. trusting. Well, maybe so. Maybe I'm still naive, like like I was in high school. I think you work at a think tank. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. I think that um, you've got all these these scholars starting in 1959 who just see that churches are struggling, and this is an opportunity for what they called social marketing. Now, critics did say, "Hey, the reason, the only reason you guys are doing this is because you feel bad because you know marketing is manipulative, and so you're trying to find a way to redeem the profession, and so you're going to help out nonprofit institutions, one of which are churches." So, so at the end of the day, when you've read all this, why should pastors care about this topic? I think that pastors should care about it because it's still a, a very uh, vibrant issue today, obviously. I mean, church marketing is still a major industry. I mean, and how do you think that the average evangelical pastor listening to this, how do you think their church is probably affected by business practices? I think all churches are, are affected significantly by business practices because particularly in America, because we have a religious free market, uh, all churches are participating in some sense in the marketplace to quote-unquote compete for customers, unfortunately. And so the way that ends up looking is that each church is sort of driven to assimilate, to adopt the practices at work and the businesses around them. And I think one of the things hopefully that my work does is that it it helps pastors to uh, just to see what what the language is, what are the terms, what are the, what's the meaning, what's going on here with marketing. Because as you look at, and I talk a little bit about this, as you look at figures like Bill Hybels and Rick Warren, and um, not so much George Barna, but, but definitely Hybels and Warren, and others throughout the 20th century, those advocates of church promotion never want to be labeled as sort of church promoters. They're always uncomfortable with the language of marketing. But, I mean, there's nothing morally wrong with Schuler, you know, wanting to, to realize that surplus parking is helpful or, right. you know, somebody selling us good cash flow is going to be helpful for your church organization. But that's not morally right. wrong, is it? No, no, definitely. I don't know. I don't think it is. I think what what's what can be wrong is the assumption that adopting those practices, those methods, doesn't bring other values and uh, cultural values with it, and particularly modern values. Uh, and particularly, what I'm demonstrating in the dissertation is the values of individualism and rationalism, and then also pluralism. So Ted Peters, Peter Drucker, Jim Collins, right? Even if none of them write as Christian authors about church ministry, you're saying the pastor who's sitting around reading their books needs to be aware that they have a theology right. that is implicit in their assumptions. Yeah, I think that's precisely right. I think that it, it, anyone who's reading those books just needs to be very critical of what they're reading, to have their, their sort of eyes open, their antenna up, and asking the questions, what value systems, what systems of meaning are driving the assumptions of those individuals, and we have to we have to think really carefully about what are the distinctions between. Unlike Dobbins, we got to think what are the distinctions between a church and a business. Is a church simply an institution or organization that engages in the marketplace to trade services and goods, or and and in that process, religion is therefore valued based on comparable goods in the marketplace, right? It's sort of commodified, we'd say. Um, or is a church something different? Is there an objective value to Christianity that stands outside of culture, outside of the marketplace? And we'd say there is. And therefore, we've got to be really careful about just 
adopting and assuming that the values of the marketplace are going to be appropriate. Or else pastors just end up as fundamentally motivational speakers or entrepreneurs or something. Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, I think we have to... The entrepreneur question is interesting to think about because... Rick Warren, I, I came across some letters between Rick Warren and Peter Drucker where Warren is Warren thanks Drucker uh, for his influence in, in helping uh, Warren to think innovatively. So P- Peter Drucker would always ask Rick Warren not, you know, what's new, what are you doing? He'd say, what have you stopped doing? And Rick was really thankful for that sort of uh, creative destruction or that innovation push to always be changing, always doing things new, that entrepreneurial drive, that in the marketplace, that's what drives the economy. Um, But in churches, I think what we've learned from church history is that entrepreneurship, innovation, creative destruction can be really dangerous um, in theology and ecclesiology. Okay, does this mean that the pastor who's sitting here was thinking about taking out an advertisement like on (laughs) on some local newspaper or a website or something, he should like think twice about it, that we shouldn't use publicity? Right, I'm not. I'm not going to go so far as to say we shouldn't use publicity. I mean, we do obviously engage in the marketplace. Um, I think that think twice though is a, probably a good recommendation. Just to be careful, um, to think about what are we advertising? You know, what are the 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 values that we're promoting? Is it like in advertisements in the 1950s? Like we have ample parking and we've got air conditioning, so come to the check out the church. Or the pastor's going to ride a pig, so come see the church. I mean, what what are we promoting about a church? Um, because the method that we use to promote will affect, you're, you're saying, will ultimately potentially affect the message. Yeah, I think maybe, so. Maybe even undermine it. I think, right. I think it definitely can undermine it and affect the way that it's received as well. Are there insights from church market in the last 30 years that you think are beneficial mm-hmm. that we want to pay attention to? Yeah. No, I well, I think that... And the the drive behind church marketing is good. I mean, it is an effort to engage in the community, to engage in the world around us, to evangelize, to spread the gospel. Um, And that is good, and that's to be commended. Um, And so I think that motive is definitely something that we should appreciate and admire. It's just that churches need to be really careful in how they do it. Uh, in terms of thinking through what values, and I know I keep saying that, but I, I think really that's the issue here, and I know that's what Wells and Guinness would say, is that what values are we importing um, through those through those methods? But in terms of specific methods that are useful or valuable, I'm not I'm not sure that I. I mean, some of the more entertaining ones, if that's the right word to use, were things that I think you would. I assume you would not feel comfortable with encouraging. So, again, you have so many Schuler stories in here from his own pen. I mean, you're just repeating things Schuler tells on himself. But I think you recounted that Schuler initially, when he was getting started, asked members of his church to all drive separate cars. Oh, not even right. Not even members of his church. church. Yeah. So that the Southern California church would look more, yeah, you know, have a more full parking lot and look yeah. more successful. Well, no, and that's I mean that's a that's a great way to get at this principle issue because his, 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 his purpose is to draw publicity. Right. That's not bad. But his his purpose is to draw publicity. But his purpose is ultimately to impress yeah. the unchurched people. And I think that's where you got to be careful: is who are you trying to impress, and what value system are you using to impress them? So what Schuler specifically did was he actually borrowed a choir. He didn't have one yet. And so he borrowed a choir from a neighboring church and asked every choir member to drive their own car so it would look like there were more people there. And then Schuler, throughout his career, he invited speakers based on their popularity, not based on their theological convictions or their doctrine, but just simply how much, could he, could, how much would they assist him in drawing a crowd. 
And so I think that's a major issue. And if you know today, if you're taking out an advertiser or something like that, are you trying to simply draw a crowd? Um, and if well, so, that appearance of success is really a lie, right? Totally. In that, in that example, yeah, yeah, it's totally manipulative. So, is it wrong for pastors to be concerned about their church's image? No, no, I don't think so. Not at all. Um, is that narcissistic? Is that necessarily self-centered? No, it's it is a necessity in terms of if if a church does not want the community around it to abhor it, um, then there there does have to be an attention to. Um, community opinion of the institution, but not to the extent where a church is sacrificing its core doctrines, core principles. Um, so if, if a church is not saying things that are biblically true because they don't want to offend the community, then that's obviously a problem. So the pastor who's listening to this right now, should he be more concerned about what the Christians in his church think about the church or about what the non-Christians around him think oh. about the local church. Yeah, no, that's a good question. I, I think definitely the Christians within the church, um, because the church exists for the body. I mean, the church is the body of believers, and it's the believers of that church's responsibility to be out evangelizing, spreading the gospel. Um, but principally, and this is that's a, a great question because I think that's where marketing goes awry, is that the identity and purpose of a church becomes defined by the customer that you're trying to attract. There are no borders or boundaries that are given. It becomes a creature, ultimately, of the market. Right. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So so that's a good, yeah, that's a, a very good distinction to draw. John, one, one thing you talk about uh, is that the focus on social justice of mainline churches, mid-century, was a, dire- was a re- re- direct output of their marketing. And so they learned what people wanted. They wanted a focus on social justice. They moved in that direction. Any lessons learned for us today, since many of us are thinking through where social justice should play a role in the life of a Christian? Yeah, man, that's a tough question. Um, I think that's true. I do try to demonstrate that. I think it's as early as the 1920s and the teens, the progressive movement, the mainline or liberal Protestant denominations were, were concerned with social justice around them. And so they adopted advertising practices as a means to advertise social injustice, to get people on board. And then it just sort of moved forward, moves forward through time until in the 1960s and 1970s, mainline denominations do focus on, and what I'm suggesting is that they focus on social justice issues in some ways because it's a non-controversial uh, topic. It's a it's a means to unite. So if you're uniting around in church promotion, if you're all getting together to talk about how to promote a church, and you have this sort of pluralistic growth, then you can't talk about doctrines that divide. And so something that unites is a concern for social justice. And so that's why I think there is that drift there. And so I yeah I think that there does have to be a a um, you have to pay attention to in what ways does our desire to attract the, the world, so to speak, to a church impact the um, initiatives that we're pursuing. Uh, so, so I don't. So is church on the internet basically an extension of the drive-in church? Yeah, it probably is. I mean, in many ways, and, and and you know, it's funny because even multiple services, let's say, I mean, take it take it back to the to the to that period of time when drive-in churches are starting. 
the first time I see multiple services starting to pop up in uh, is 1940s, 1950s, and it's as religion in America is growing mm-hmm. and churches are trying to catch up. So it starts as, and the, the, what I'm saying, the correlation here, um, the, the, the parallel here is to say that it starts as, hey, this is a means by which we can get more people involved in a church, right? We can have multiple services so we have more seating. We can put it out on the Internet so people can watch it from home. But it also develops into a promotional tactic. Uh, we can get more people to to come to our church because of the convenience mm-hmm. of multiple services or to participate in our church because of the convenience of the Internet. Uh, and, and then that, of course, raises all kinds of questions about how a church can function if it's broken up in those well, sorts of fashions. When you say more involved or participate in. Yeah. I mean, it's nicely vague language. I mean, which is more important for a pastor to look, consider, the attendance or his membership? Right. Yeah, well, and I think, yeah. You know, is it just a matter of drawing a crowd, or is it more significant that you know who confesses Christ, you yeah. baptize them, they take the Lord's Supper regularly, they're walking, you know, in the Spirit from what you can tell, yeah. being a, a good example of what it means to follow Christ. Well, and I think It seems like a lot of this stuff happens when you think the most important thing is the attendance. Right. Is how large a crowd yeah, you can true. draw. Yeah, and I think that's that's a part of this this rationalistic development that I talk about. It's that emphasis on measuring success by quantifiable metrics. So it's numbers. And that's what you see develop in the 20th century in terms of sort of the broad picture here. You can see the, the growing emphasis on how many people... Uh, it's all about the numbers. It's not about the depth of discipleship um, that are in, that are involved. So, I think that's that's true. That that's a, that is a major uh, challenge, fallacy with church promotion. Is it it brings this rationalism into the way that we think about the success and define the success of a church. Well, what is pragmatism? Yeah, pragmatism is uh, determining the the value of an action based on the practical consequences. So, is that bad? Well, so for instance, I think a great definition actually is given by Bill Hybels. Bill Hybels says, I'm a pragmatist. I measure things by whether they work. Uh, Rick Warren says, similarly, I never criticize anything that God is blessing. So the assumption is, if it William works... William James said, that which works is true. Right, yes. Um, Charles Finney said, show me the fr- fruits of your ministry. If they're better than mine, then I'll believe what you're saying. So... It's all the, the same in the sense that uh, it is the practice is being driven by whether it works or not. There are no other sort of values behind it. And I think that it's, it is very dangerous. And I would recommend, if anybody's curious in looking at how pragmatism has impacted churches in this question, to look at John MacArthur's Ashamed of the Gospel. He deals with pragmatism, I think, really well in that. Um, but the, the problem with pragmatism is that it does... That getting back to this issue that we've raised again and again is it ignores the fact that there are values behind methods. It's not just a question of does the method work. It's a question of what are the values behind the method, what are the ends that you're leading to, and so I think that yeah, we have to be really careful with pragmatism. And I, w- I was actually surprised to see Hybels and Warren so explicitly endorse pragmatism. You know, I think sometimes in the, in the sort of conservative evangelical critiques of pragmatism, um, it seems like we become too mindless about what works, and we almost seem to think, you know, small is a sign of holiness. And mm-hmm. you know, when we talk about success uh, is not to be preferred, faithfulness is to be preferred. Then do we not care about how many people are coming? In? And I've heard Philip Jensen before 
say, look, I'm a pragmatist, I'm a biblical pragmatist. You know, yes, I want to know what works, I'm interested in what works, but within the parameters of what scripture right. yeah, allows true. and calls Very for. True. Yeah. Um, I, I do think it's naive for a pastor to consider that one's philosophy of ministry isn't as significant as your stated theology, stated biblical grasp of the gospel. I do think what's implicit a lot of times in church marketing stuff is this idea that what really matters is the practical things. Mm-hmm. And that if you um, if you get these right, then what your theology is, that they just never ask you about. They never think about. I think there's an indifference to theology that's created. On the other hand, I do think it's possible to say, look, all that really matters is your theology. Right. And if we get your theology right, then these things don't matter. Well, I don't think it's true, because I think what you're showing, one of the things you're showing, is that these other things can actually be inconsistent with your theology and can even work to undermine it. So if you preach, on the one hand, a very clear gospel, but on the other hand, you structure your church such as to be very indistinct from the world around it, then I think you make it hard on the Christians. I think you make it hard on the non-Christians. I think, you know, maybe because you're a good speaker, you're going to be able to have a really large crowd watching you all the time. But I don't know that you're really helping, you know, the gospel go forward much. Yeah, yeah. That's good. Insight. Um, Rick Warren advocates that we define our purposes, communicate our purposes, organize around our purposes, apply our purposes. Any problem with that? Well, I don't. I mean, I honestly, can't. I mean, I think I think Rick could sign the statement of faith of our church. Yeah, yeah. I think he he likes nine marks. What what's what what problem is there with define our purposes, communicate our purposes, organize around our purposes, apply our purposes? I think that. I mean, again, I, what I'm dealing with in the work I've done really is with promotion, um, and so I'm I'm not. I don't know that I can speak really well to to Warren's uh, focus on purpose and that sort of thing. Uh, but again, I mean, it does seem to sort of embody, obviously, a, a kind of a business philosophy. It sounds like a vision statement and the way we get things done in the, the business world. So I don't know that on the surface necessarily there's anything wrong with that. I'm not sure what, how that works itself out in terms of the, the, the methods and the values that, it, um, that are associated with it. So, Any other lessons you want to bring out for your, from your work before we close? Um... I had thought of something, but now I've forgotten it. <laughs> I think one of the most, I think the most basic question people have about all this is: Is it wrong to count? Right. You know, is, <laughs> is there anything wrong with assuming as a pastor that one of your goals is to have more people attending your church service? Is there anything wrong with that? Yeah, and I don't think there's anything wrong with that in principle. Um, it's and, a matter of how you go about trying to accomplish it. Yeah. Um, so. And having a lot of these problems, though, that you're recording, discovering and recording and interpreting, haven't a lot of them come from an uncritical assumption that the more people who hear you, the better it must be for the gospel, for Right, yeah, the more successful you are, the more effective you are. Yeah. 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 Um, I will, I just really quickly, one of the things that I hope that this, that, that this work helps to is distill down the critiques of church marketing. So Wells and Guinness have got great things to say as do Phil Kinnison and all these others. Um, and what I try to do in the latter half of, of, the, of the last chapter is take everything that, that all of these people have said and really distill it down to what are the, the, the principal issues here. So that for pastors, you don't necessarily have to read 
all these books to get a sense for it. But you can just see, okay, here's the central issues, problems, critiques that these people see, these individuals see with church marketing. So I hope that's another way that it's, that it's helpful. Well, and as, you, as you've brought out in your comments, the idea that the customer is always right is just a difficult one when you're telling people they're sinners. Uh, right, exactly. When your whole Precisely. message is, is, begins with repent, right. how does that fit with the customer's king? Yeah, yes, exactly. You know, David Wells said in a letter to Christianity Today a few years ago, the church cannot be grown as a business. Sinners are not consumers. Christ is not a product to be purchased, and the gospel is not up for sale. It is truth that the church has to offer, and when this is treated indifferently, the church loses its reason for existence. Yeah, that's well said. Anything else uh, um, on manipulation inherent in in, uh, business practices or inherent in pastors thinking about people in a commodified way? I don't think. I mean, I don't think so. That is one of the. That's actually that critique that that promotion manipulates people and treats people like numbers. That's one of the older critiques of church promotion. You do see that earlier in the 20th century, uh, but I th- I'm trying to remember who develops that even more. It may be Douglas Webster uh, who handles that well, and it's definitely an issue to to be considered um, a critique of church marketing in the way that it views people, uh, particularly in terms of discrimination, in terms of counting in terms of uh, just meeting felt needs, those sorts of things. So. As of this date, Robert Schuller's Crystal Cathedral may be bought by the Roman Catholic Church. Yes, I saw that, and he was voted off of his board, yeah, I saw that too. which is, yeah, it's amazing. Um, and, and just to, to see how kind of he full built, circle, it's... yeah, to see how he built his church around his promotion, his publicity, there just wasn't any way, I don't think, that it was ever going to survive without him at the helm. And it's really fascinating to to go through his material. I don't know how anyone really attended that church without wanting to leave because every week there was something new that money had to be raised for. He was just constantly innovating, constantly building. And everything was just full of exclamation points and about how wonderful the next week would be. It's just constant, constant promotion and publicity. And he was very good at it. Um, but once he was removed from the driver's seat, then... The Crystal Cathedral, I guess, fades. Any other prognostications about the future from looking back at the past? <laughs> no, I think it's going to be really interesting to see what happens with church marketing. Uh, I think that was one of the, the big questions that I had as I worked through this. You see advertising to public relations and sales to marketing and just wondering, where does this go next? Where does the where does business promotion move next? Obviously, branding has become really big. Um, and seeing not only where does this business go, but how do churches follow along? Because I think, if anything, what we've seen from the work I've done is churches will follow along uh, to some extent, and and it's going to be interesting to see how they apply these principles. And I think that's why it's so important that pastors be critical, think carefully. What are the values behind these methods? Because they're not value neutral. Any plan to publish your dissertation or make it more widely available? I hope so. I'm working on the the proposal now to get it published. I'm going to try and get it published by an academic press, and then we'll see what happens after that. Um, perhaps could write some articles or try to write something that may be a little more uh, accessible. The dis- this dissertation is nearly 600 pages long, so that's a beast for anyone. Good 600 to- pages. Well, <laughs> yes, I hope so. Well, uh, but yeah, I'm hoping it will be published hopefully soon. Great. Well, thanks very much. When you publish something else, we'll have you back. Thank you very much. Thanks for taking the time. Thanks.
Thank you, friends, for listening to this Nine Marks audio message. We encourage you to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more audio messages and other free resources, we invite you to visit us online at www.ninemarks.org or call us toll-free at 1-888-543-1030. Nine Marks exists to equip church leaders with a biblical vision and practical resources for displaying God's glory to the nations through healthy churches.